Please turn to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. We are in the midst of a series that I've titled Foundations. And uh, one of these days, Curtis and I will get together and put it on the web as a series called Foundations and break it up accordingly to you. So you have it. But we started in Genesis chapter 1 a while back and saw how God had expressed his love to his creation, humanity, Adam and Eve, and how they rejected that love and believed a lie. And we call that the fall. And God, even though they sinned against him, provided coats of skins so that they would then have an atonement, a covering of their sin, so they could fellowship with God. Then we saw how sin passed from parents to child with Cain and Abel, Cain the firstborn, and I'm sure that Eve probably thought this was a promised one. She was promised one that would crush the head of the serpent, and Cain did not turn out to be that promised one. He killed his brother, and things just progressed on until we get to Genesis chapter 6, and the race is so corrupted by that time that God decides he's going to wipe off everyone, everything that has breath from the face of the earth, save eight souls, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. So we've gotten pretty far in our series on the foundations, but today we're going to talk post-flood. We've talked about the flood, we've talked about the preparation for it, and during the flood last week, we talked about that, or two weeks ago, Victor was last week. But today, we're going to talk about what it was like for Noah to come out after that flood. So let's just turn our time over to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these records. Um, Much of what we read in these early chapters of Genesis, we would have no way of knowing save your divine revelation that you actually have recorded it for us through the hand of Moses. Let us not forget that Moses wrote these things for the nation of Israel that was being formed (laughs) and just coming out of Egypt after being there over 400 years, Lord, they may have forgotten much of their history and that they are God's people. Father, let us take these things to heart. They're to teach us, even us today who live so long after they took place, and let us apply them to our own hearts, each individually as the Spirit of God would have. And we entrust that to you, knowing that you do all things well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So just how long was that flood? Let me read to you from... Chapter 7, beginning in verse 17 to the end of that chapter. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth. So that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher. That's 22.5 feet if a cubit is 18 inches. Above the highest mountains and the mountains were covered. And all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. And all that was on the dry land and all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left to gather uh, together with those that were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Wow. 
The scriptures are very exact with dates regarding the flood. For the sake of ease, I'm going to just use our calendar months. So don't say that this is in the Bible, but I'm going to use our calendar months to help us work through this. And you can take down notes if you'd like. This chart is in many books and commentaries that tell us how long the flood actually lasted. It's an illustration of how long it lasted using our months. So, February 10th, the year 600. Noah was 600. God told Noah to enter the ark. You see that in 7.1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, and for you alone I, um, I have seen righteous and to be righteous before me in time. February 17th. When Noah was 600 years old, the flood begins. You see that in 7.11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were open. You see how precise God is here. And then on July, or sometime in July, in the year... 600 of Noah's life, we read it was 150 days. You see that in, in um, 712. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and then you see it again in 17, and came, uh, the rain came upon uh, the earth for 40 days in the water, and at the end in verse 24 of this chapter, it says it was for 150. And 50 days. Do you understand that that's five months? See, we, we often think, you know, well, it rained 40 days and 40 nights. How much rain could happen in 40 days? For five months, folks. And that is not it. The water continued to prevail. Okay? So that took place in July, in the 600th year of Noah's life. 150 days. We've got the flood raging five months long. July 7th, 600th year, the waters began to recede. You see that in 724. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, and then it began to, to recede. Look over at chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. And the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. So, the ark rests on Ararat on July 17th, in the 600th year of Noah's life. On October 1st, in the 600th year of his life, the tops of the mountains were able to be seen. Look at 8.5. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month, in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And then on October 1st, the tops of the mountains are able to be seen. And then, you can see that in 8.5. And then November 10th begins to send out birds. He sends out birds. He sends out a raven first. You remember the story. And then the doves a couple different times. That began... And it took 61 days. If you look at Genesis 8, 6, verse 10 and verse 12, and tally that up, you'll find it was 61 days. And on January 1st, in the 601st year of Noah's life, the waters of the flood are dried up. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 8. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him. That's the end of that. Now, it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. How precise. Now, this is just a local flood. No biggie. No biggie. Okay, we started out February 10th in the 600th year of Noah's life, and now we're at January 1st, of the 601st year of his life. And February 27th, a day that Noah would never forget, in his 601st year of life, God told Noah, go out. 
go out of the ark. And you see that in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 8. It says this, In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your daughters, or your sons and your sons' wives with you. Now, that comes to a grand total of one year and ten days. One year and ten days, the flood and its aftermath were on the earth, and Noah and his family were in the ark. One year and ten days. (laughs) There is no way that could have been a local flood. Just no way. It's impossible. Now, in Genesis 6, 17, uh, 7 and 8, God told Noah how he would send a flood that would take the life of everything on the earth and had its breath and its nostrils. But he said, I will establish my covenant with you. He made a promise to Noah. A covenant is a promise. That's what a covenant is. And God promised Noah that that he'd preserve him and his three sons and their wives and Mrs. Noah, eight souls in all, and that's it. He would preserve them. They would be safe. And God kept his word to Noah because we read that at the end of the flood, when the waters receded and everything was dry and the, the ark had landed, Noah and his sons and their wives were told to leave the ark. Flood was over, and Noah and his family came out of the ark safe and secure, just as God had promised. You can trust God's word. He is trustworthy. What he says will come to pass. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah... And all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. If you read through all the way to chapter, uh, verse 19, you'll see that God remembered Noah. And this is very interesting. What might have been going through Noah's mind, you might think, as the flood raged outside and he sat safe and secure inside the ark? And as the days passed, extending into a month, and then two months, and then four months, and then six months, and then a year, one man suggests this, quote, far down in the unfathomable depths below lies a dead and buried world, and Noah was shut up in his narrow prison, seems to be abandoned to his fate can't help himself, and and in this universal visitation of sin, this terrible reckoning with sinners, why should he obtain mercy? What is he that when all else are taken that he should be left? May May he not be righteously allowed to perish after all because he is a sinner, just like the rest? Does he not feel himself to be the chief of sinners? But Noah found grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Noah was just a man, people. And we often forget that. We read about David killing Goliath and, you know, all of his feats and everything. Don't forget, he committed adultery and murder. He was a man. He was a sinner. Just as each of us sitting here is. During his over one-year sojourn in the ark, We don't see any recording of any interaction with God. God didn't speak to Noah that we know of for that year and 10 days. There are no conversations recorded between Yahweh's words. Enter the ark in 7-1, Genesis 7-1, and the go out of the ark in 8-16. 375 days. And not just sitting idly, quietly, but in an ark with a raging flood, tossing it hither and yon, floating on the water. Silence. It's unthinkable, or is it unthinkable for you, to consider 
that maybe Mrs. Noah said, what up? Right? I'm sorry. Sometimes women have a tendency to ask these questions. Or his children, three sons, right? Saying, now what? Okay, maybe after a month, maybe after six months, a year and ten days, are you kidding me? They were all just humans, and I don't think for a moment that Noah could not have felt abandoned. Because he was just a man. Just a man. Now, I'm speculating there. I cannot see that in the scripture, but I know what I'm made up of. I'm just a man. And are you kidding me? Six months? A year? How long can you bear not sensing God's presence or seeing his answer to your prayers? A month? Four months? Half a year? Maybe you feel like God has abandoned you and that he's not listening to your prayers. Remember Noah. Think of Noah. It may seem to you like God has forgotten about you or your sin has made him do so. Well, listen, because as we move into Genesis chapter 8, the very first words tell us, but, that's a contrast. Noah's been floating there for quite a while, right? And then it says, but God remembered Noah. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. God remembered Noah brings hope. God's first words in over a year must have been like the sun bursting through the deep rolling storm clouds and shining directly on Noah. During the year's ordeal, it is not unfeasible to think that Noah may have been feeling pretty much alone there. He had done everything that God had asked him to do. He had built that ark. And yet for the past year, nothing. And then we read, but God remembered Noah. Now, now this is what we call an anthropomorphism. Excuse me. Anthropomorphism. Okay. All it means is that God's talking like a, like a being, like a human being. It, it, it's when God speaks as if he were a person. God could never forget Noah and, and then suddenly go, oh yeah, Noah. As if it just popped into his mind. God is omniscient. And, and this is why studying the attributes of God is, is so important. When, when we know what God is like and what his character is, and how he acts, we can derive great peace in the face of seemingly hopeless situations. And though Noah maybe felt alone, I'm sure he remembered back everything that he knew about God. And maybe he was hoping and hoping and hoping and thinking, boy, I hope I'm correct. But God remembered Noah. You know, it's very important for us as people today to know who God is. And we have this entire book, which is his revelation. It's his self-revelation. He tells us what he's like in this book so that when difficult times come, we can lean on the character of God. Spurgeon knew God well, and he said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when you cannot trace his hand, when you don't understand what he's doing, you can always trust his heart. You see, he knew God, and he knew God's heart, and he trusted God's heart. But you can't do that if you don't know God. If you have a very, very low view of God, that he's like a, a loving grandfather or something, and that's as far as your knowledge of God goes, you're going to be really, really having a difficult time when you face difficult times. But those that have studied God's word and come to understand his character as, he, as we see him act and interact with people, that his word can be trusted. Even the warnings, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They ate, they died, first spiritually, then physically. You need to know God. Because if you know him deeper, you might be like, Habakkuk, when he said, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and though 
The olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. And though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. And I will be joyful in God my Savior. That's in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. You see, Habakkuk knew his God. And though all those things came up, nothing. And though he floated in that ark for 100, or excuse me, one year and 10 days, he knew his God. During the time of seeming abandonment by God, when, when you could not see him acting on your behalf and not answering your prayers, you may have almost lost hope. Because life gives us those one-year-and-ten-day experiences. I've been through a couple of them because I'm older. And I'll tell you, the first time it happened to me was probably, let's see, it was in 1975. Probably the first year, year and a half of my salvation, I suddenly woke up and I didn't sense his presence like I had been experiencing it from the day that I believed. I freaked out. I, w- I was in Bible school at that time. I went to a Bible professor and I said, I don't, I don't feel like God's here anymore. And he, being older and wiser, just said, well, sit down, talk to me, tell me about it. And he just explained to me, God is now, he's been so gracious to you for all this time since you believed, and now he's wanting to develop your faith. You need to just believe And before, you could sense his presence, and he was holding your hand, walking right with you. You sense, now you need to trust him. And that wasn't the last time that I experienced something like that. Well, maybe you're in a a place like that today. I want you to remember Noah, even as God did. God will act on your behalf again, and you'll suddenly feel alive again and revived and all that's right in the world. And, and you're moving forward again with God and fears of God's abandonment leave you. It'll come around. If you're truly regenerate, he's testing. He's strengthening your faith. And he wants to see you trust him even though you don't feel him, even though you don't see him at work right now in your life. I had an experience just recently where someone that is not very, very strong in the Lord. And, and um, I, I imagine sometimes that they question whether they're really, truly saved or whatever. And all of a sudden, um, he had an opportunity to really minister in somebody's life. And the person that he was ministering to, he had ministered to him for many years, and the person never responded. Um, ridiculed him a little bit, made fun of him. But they were friends, and their friendship continued on, and the person continued to witness to him, and on his deathbed, he said, I want to trust Christ. I want want to ask for forgiveness of my sins. And so the person, who was not very strong in the Lord, really, um, had a chance to pray with him, and he trusted Christ. And, And not only so, but a couple days after that, he actually gave testimony to a person that's not a believer and said, I've asked Jesus to forgive all my sins. (laughs) So the light shone on that person, right? The the flood was over, and and God was alive again in his life, and he thought, whoo, I am a believer. God does love me. God is using me. So don't give up hope. A year and 10 days is a long time, right? It may be longer for you. I don't know. But if you really know your God and you really study him and see what he's like, stay strong in the difficult times because you'll be able to. And and don't you abandon him. Okay? Don't walk away from him in those difficult times. Be like Job. You remember Job, right? Even if you haven't read the whole book, you know about Job. Job suffered badly. But he said this in the midst of his suffering in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, though he, God, slay me, yet I will trust him. That's the kind of faith that we need to cultivate. And that last phrase, yet I will trust him, can be translated as the New International Version does, yet 
I will hope in him. The psalm that my Bible teacher turned me to is Psalm 27. And at the very end of that psalm, it says, well, turn there very quickly and just let me read it to you. It was such a comfort to my heart. And I had never even thought of this stuff before because I was such a young believer. But boy, have I turned back here many times. Psalm 27. The very end, it says, verse 13, I would have despaired, that's what I felt like when I went to the teacher, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Okay? Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. That's what you do when you feel abandoned of God. That's what you do when you just can't sense his presence anymore. You wait for the Lord and trust him. And then you'll be able to say, together with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He is trustworthy. Now, when God remembered Moses, it's not as though I said, like I said, that it suddenly popped in God's mind, oh, I almost forgot about Moses. He's been out there for like a year and 10 days. <laughs> Can you imagine God like that? I often try to do these things with my own mind. I play little tricks with myself, right? Like when I get really worried, I try to figure and see God up in heaven going, oh my gosh, I wonder what's going to happen with Steve. <laughs> you know, it's gone. I, I stop worrying pretty quickly because it's almost, I feel like it's an affront to God. He knows what he's about. I may not, but that's okay. He's God and I'm a man. Let my words be few, right? In the Old Testament, God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his remembrance. The primary meaning of the Hebrew word, remembering, which is zakar, is granting requests, protecting, or delivering. That's what the word zakar means, remembering. It's not like calling back to mind something. And when God is a subject and persons are the object, he's always moving towards the object that he's remembering. It's active. It's kind of like God loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Love is active. It's not just this feeling, right? So remembering is like that. And there are other instances where we can see it and the activity of this verb. In Genesis 19.29, after God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, even as Abraham was looking down on the two cities and seeing the smoke rise, the Bible tells us that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which, God, uh, in which Lot lived. So God acted on Lot's behalf and delivered him because he remembered Abraham. Remembrance is not just recalling thought. It's active. And then in Exodus 2.24, we read that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God acted by calling Moses out of the bush and so began his deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He remembered and it included acting. Now, here are three distinct ways that God remembered and acted out on behalf of Noah. Number one, the water subsided because God sent a wind. Genesis 8, 1 through 3. Secondly, God gave Noah a sign. In verses 6 through 11, Noah sent out birds to see if the waters had receded yet. The raven never returned, probably because he is a carrion bird and he just rested on some of the corpses of whatever was still floating on the waters, had food and a place to rest, but a dove would never do that because a dove is a clean bird, not a carrion bird. And so the first dove just returned, and the second dove returned with a freshly picked olive leaf in her beak, a sign of peace to this day. The wrath of God was completed, and peace was now possible and so God gave Noah a sign, and, and that was helpful to Noah, and God acting on Noah's behalf. And thirdly, God spoke to Noah, yay! He spoke to him again. After all that time, 815, 
What did he say? Hallelujah, this is what he said. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives. It's the first time he's spoken since back in chapter 7 when he said, Go into the ark. And then he shut the door. Wow. It's not a small thing to hear the voice of God once again. And as I mentioned, it would seem that God was silent the entire time that Noah was in the ark, but now he spoke to him again. How reassuring and how much hope it must have brought to Noah. And so what did Noah do? Look at verse 20 of chapter 8. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Wait, wait, I'm in 7, 8, uh, 7, 20. 8.20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Noah made a sacrifice, and the sacrifice Sacrifice had to be absolutely massive. Must have been one of the most generous offerings ever offered as Noah took one of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered them to God. Because the Hebrew would allow for the translation of 820 to read and took one of every clean animal and one of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, if you look over at chapter 7, real quickly, there's an interesting little fact, because Noah took one of every clean animal and one of every clean bird, and you will see that in verse 2 of chapter 7, you shall take with you, this is before the flood, Noah's gathering the animals or God's bringing them to him. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, by sevens, a male and a female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his male. Uh, most people think that Noah just brought two of everything in. Of the clean animals and the clean birds, he brought them in by sevens. Why? Well, we just read about it in 820. So he had something to sacrifice to God. Many commentators say there were seven because the extra one was the one that was offered in a sacrifice after the flood. And so there were three sets of two for ongoing sacrifices that would take place as they reproduced. Very, very interesting. The scriptures are so, there's so much, they just keep on yielding up more and more. But if, if ever a man would be compelled to be excessive in offering so many as a burnt offering to God, Noah, saved together with his family, out of all the human race on earth, would undoubtedly have been immeasurably grateful to God and humbled before him. So the sacrifice that he offered was twofold. It was it was a sacrifice of a blend of thanksgiving and a propitiation. Okay? And we'll get to that in a moment. The first mention of altar in all the Bible is in 820. He built an altar. Sacrifices have been since the first one in Eden after the couple's fall. And again, seen in Genesis chapter 4, there were sacrifices, but we never hear of an altar. So it's assumed that this is the first altar that was built. And the term altar simply means the place of slaughter because they were sacrificed there and then burnt. And so the sacrifice here is a blend of thanksgiving and propitiation. An offering of thanksgiving, Noah's altar was raised up to Yahweh, raised up to the Lord. Any place you see in the Bible in the Old Testament where Lord is all small capital letters, replace that with Yahweh. That's what it means, Yahweh. Sometimes it says Yahweh God. So, because it was Yahweh in whose eyes Noah had found favor, and it was Yahweh who established his covenant with Noah and his family, that they'd be delivered from the flood, 
even though he said, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Noah's gratitude must have been overwhelming to come out of that ark. And it's so easy to read over Genesis 8 and just kind of fly right past Noah coming out of the ark going, whew, flood's done, you know, let's move right along here. Got to get to the Tower of Babel. (laughs) Stop and think. Take some time to think and meditate. What must it have been like? (laughs) Well, he was saved. Out of all the human beings, only him and his three sons and their wives were saved. Well, you know what? We've been saved too. From an even greater greater judgment. Because he's delivered us from eternal death and separation from him through the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, help us not to be so numb by the world and all the distractions that we become unable to rejoice in our salvation. You ever just sit down and just think, man, I'm so glad I'm saved. How do people that don't know the Lord live in this world? So it was an offering of thanksgiving, but it was also an offering of propitiation. That's a big word. That's one of those Asian words, sanctification, justification, propitiation. Right? It's like, I call them Asian words. We're invited into thoughts of God's heart in, in 21. Look at what he says in 821. Pretty interesting, actually. He says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. He didn't say the intent of man's heart used to be evil from his youth. He says the intent of man's heart is, present tense, evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. That's called biblical anthropology. Men are sinful. Original sin passes to every human being. Nobody escapes. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so here is where God reiterates the effect of the fall on man. Pre and post flood. The waters of the flood did wash away all the sinners from the earth, except the eight that were in the ark. But it could never wash away sin. It didn't purge the earth of sin. And he identified the state of man, God did. He said the intent of man's heart is evil from his his youth, and yet, he uses the word yet, and he makes a vow with his own heart. He says, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man. I'll never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Noah's sacrifice was more um, than a burnt offering of thanksgiving. It was also an offering of propitiation because Noah knew he was a sinner and yet had escaped. Now, propitiation just means satisfaction. Satisfaction. And this is how it works. All the Old Testament sacrifices before and after the formulization of the offerings to God, which we see in further chapters in the Pentateuch, when you get into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, the sacrifices are all organized and formalized. But even before that, sacrifices were being made. And all of those offerings to God, when a person offered a sacrifice to God, it was a sinner offering the sacrifice of an innocent animal in place of himself or herself, and thereby acknowledging that they individually, as a sinner before a holy and a just creator who does not sin, deserved to pay for their sin with their own death. But instead, God taught Adam and Eve with the coats of skins that you could take an innocent animal and they would be your substitute. And that innocent animal's blood would atone or cover your sin so that you could have fellowship with God even though you're a sinner. It's not the removal of sin, it's just the covering. And it affords the one sacrificing the ability to have fellowship again with God would receive the sacrifice and be satisfied, propitiate it. Big word. Because of the heart and condition of the one that was offering the sacrifice, the self-recognition of their own sinfulness, the phrase in 8.21 shows that God was propitiated 
with Noah's sacrifice. It says Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. The soothing aroma. What, what, he's happy to see animals killed? No. He loves his creation. But he's happy to see Noah's heart was contrite. And he admitted he was a sinner by offering these burnt offerings. Simply means that when he viewed the sentiments behind the sacrifice, he viewed them with satisfaction and allowed Noah to have fellowship with him. Now, Noah, more than any other man on earth, knew God's holy indignation with the sinfulness of man, and that his judgment had just been poured out upon the earth, and he saw it, being the only humans on earth at that time, a new beginning. And in deep humility and supplication, Noah offered that burnt offering, and every clean animal, and one of every clean bird. A burnt offering typified the idea of complete self-consecration. How? Because when you burn something, it's completely gone. So it's not just the slaying of the animal, it's actually the consumption of that entire animal, which you have identified with. And so the one performing the sacrifice identified with it from their heart and offered their complete self-consecration to God. But this, this is important stuff, people. Unless anybody's tempted to shuffle this concept just back to the Old Testament and say that's the way they did it back there, I don't see any relationship to our spiritual experience today. Let me share a simple verse with you that you might be familiar with. It's, it goes like this. You tell me where it is. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Where is that found? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, right? Where is that? Is that in the Old Testament? or? Oh, it's in the New Testament. Huh, a sacrifice in the New Testament. Begins with therefore. What's it there for? That's what you're always supposed to ask. Whenever you see a therefore, what's it there for? Well, something preceded that, okay? And in this case, Romans 1 through 11 preceded 12.1. There's a lot, of, a lot of stuff there. But the basis and direction to sanctification, which is here identified as union with Christ, as seen in the virtue of the power of Jesus' resurrection. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6, because that's surely included before Romans chapter 12, and is included in the therefore. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6 says this, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized or placed into, because that's what baptizo means, placed into Christ, Jesus, have been placed into his death. And therefore we have been buried with him through baptism, or being placed into, into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of his Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united, union with him, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So Paul used the therefore to point back to this basis for his exhortation in Romans 12.1 and our union with Christ as a basis. We could just as easily read Romans 12.1 because of our union with Christ, which came to us by the mercies of God, do this. And what's he say to do? Well, present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. Now this is language taken from sacrificial ritual of the Old Testament. Sacrifice means sacrifice. And Paul's not demanding that we present our human bodies to be slain. That's stupid. Again, this goes back to Romans 6.13. Neither present your members, okay, hands, eyes, mouth, feet, your members of your body, neither present the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but now present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as now instruments of righteousness to God. 
That's the same thing in Romans 12.1. Based on the mercies of God explained in Romans 1-11 and our great salvation, consecrate yourselves fully to God. Why would we not do that? Our bodies as believers are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, aren't they? And we are now members of Christ. Okay, to use the illusion that I often allude to, our union with Christ, what I read in Romans chapter 6, is getting on the school bus. If you're on the school bus, you're going to get to school. If you're in Christ, you will get to heaven. Or the escalator illustration. When you believed in Jesus Christ, you were placed or baptized into his death and his resurrection. It's done. It's a done deal. You're on the escalator, folks. You're going to get there. Because we have union with Christ. Now, the fact that our sacrifice is living shows that it's to be a constant and ongoing sacrifice as long as we're alive on this earth. And this is how we should view ourselves, as living sacrifices. Every day, moment by moment, reconsecrating ourselves to God. Oops, sorry, I blew it, Lord. I was thinking I was my own again. Oops, sorry, God, I sinned again against you. Thank you that Jesus died for that sin, that one, and all the ones in the past, and all the ones in the future, and I'm safe. I'm in the ark. His name is Jesus. Are you, are you catching on how the sacrifice of Moses kind of relates to us a little bit? And then it says... In Romans 12, 1, it says, which is your spiritual service of worship, which is a really poor translation. This is the link-up with Noah's sacrifice and why it was acceptable to Yahweh. The phrase, as it is in the English, is somewhat misleading. The word used for spiritual, where it says, this is your spiritual service, has nothing to do with pneuma, which is usually used when you talk about spiritual things in the New Testament. Numa has nothing to do with that. This word is actually the word logikos, where we get the word logic from in English. And the use of logikos in this uh, verse is explaining that the logikos pertaining to a reasoning faculty, a reasonable or rational sense is used here in the service of worship is to be rendered by believers presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. The sacrifice is to be an intelligent sacrifice that you have thought through, that you think through on a moment-by-moment basis when you're tempted to click there or when you're tempted to turn that on, turn it off. Think. Ours is not a a religion, a tradition. Ours is a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus Christ. The sacrifice is to be intelligent in contrast to those offered by ritual and compulsion. The presentation is to be in accordance with the spiritual intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and are mindful of the mercies of God. Romans 1 through 11. Now just as Noah, after embarking from the ark, after one year and ten days, and seeing the new world where he, he and his family were the only human inhabitants, considered the wonderful mercy and granted him by virtue of God, determined, that's the will, by his own human reason, to offer the burnt offerings he offered, so we, as delivered from the slavery of sin and bought, brought into the kingdom, of his dear son based on our union with Jesus Christ should logically, reasonably consecrate our entire selves, thoughts, words, and actions to God alone. To God alone. That's who we live for. Day in, day out, until we die, moment by moment, to God alone. Our consecration, as was Noah's displayed by his sacrifice, has to be from the mindset of ones who have used our reason and intelligence to determine how complete our worship should be to God. Our complete dedication of ourselves to God comes by our conscious, intelligent, and reasoned conclusion. (laughs) That's what that little phrase means, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what that means. 
So Paul reasoned in a, a similar way with the Corinthians. You remember the Corinthians. They were not the, shall we say, sharpest tool in God's box. The whole church was rank, right? A lot of immorality, a lot of misuse of gifts. Um, even though Paul was a spiritual man, I'm sure he had some sleepless nights over that church. But he wrote to them in one place. He said this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own because you have been bought with a price. What price? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, oh, what's it there for? Well, what did he just say? Therefore, glorify God in your body. In your body. It's the living sacrifice all over again. Use this thing to glorify God. Now I have a speaking gift. I'm glorifying God today by using my gift to glorify him by speaking. You may have a gift of helps, where you can help somebody that has need, or the gift of mercy, where this person is suffering and you just are constrained to go and encourage that person, or the gift of exhortation. That's a scary one, where you see somebody that needs some help and you say, listen, Buster, you claim the name of Jesus Christ. What are you doing that for? That's exhortation. It's a gift. Uh, not one that we like to know about, but it's there. So use your body, your tongue, your eyes, your hands, your feet to glorify God. That's in 1 Corinthians 6.20. But wait, there's more. Except I'm out of time. And I'm not going to go into the more today because I'd just basically be able to tell you this. It's all about covenant and it's all in chapter 9. And I can't wait to get there because we're going to talk about covenants and the Noahic covenant. And it links the whole Bible together. It's a creational covenant. You can study it. The promise of God that God made to Noah is not just concerning Noah. It's a creational covenant, a universal promise to Noah as a representative. He's the new human representative of the human race for humanity and the earth as well as the animal and birds of creation because the Noahic covenant is all-inclusive. It's, it's like start again button. He start over button. He's a new representative. So we'll get to that next week, but let's stop now and thank God for the morning. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you how the new and the old just intertwine with each other, Father, almost seamlessly. Similar terminology, Father. And definitely similar concepts. Let us yield ourselves to you. Lock, stock, and barrel, Father. If there's areas in our life where we still retain control over, we really don't have control over it. But Father, if we're exercising our, our wills to do those things that are displeasing to you, let us just yield that to you. Recognize that we need to offer ourselves as a burnt offering to you, fully consumed, where there's nothing left but to praise and glorify your name in the way that we live and the things that we do and the things that we think and the things that we say. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for this morning of worship together. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.